There are a few aspects in the Christian life to the waiting that we do and that we just sang of. We wait on God to answer our prayers. We wait on God to bring us through trials. We wait on God to lift up our countenance at times. And ultimately, we wait on God for the experience of our full salvation when the Lord Jesus Christ returns from heaven. This last aspect of waiting is focused on the end. Belief in a history that is headed toward an appointed end when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, returns from heaven to judge the living and the dead is fundamental to our faith. We are to look forward to this future with knowledge and eager anticipation. Yet Christians aren't alone in our focus on the future. The thought of the end of the world or an apocalypse or Armageddon is all around us. We see it in pop culture, most prominently in movies that depict cosmic battles that threaten the earth and human existence or dystopian futures that come in the aftermath of catastrophic events. Or we hear it regularly in the news media. For example, July 20th and 27th, 2020, the cover of Time magazine read, One Last Chance, the defining year for the planet. The feature article said 2020 is our last best chance to save the planet. We see a focus on the future in the phenomenon known as prepping or doomsday prepping, where individuals are consumed with making personal preparations to weather whatever storm they imagine the, apoc the apocalyptic future may bring. One writer expressed his outlook like this, I'm getting ready. Ready for the end of the world. I know the end is near. I've seen the warning signs. Been preparing myself. Bringing in supplies. I'm getting ready for the end to come. That final hour when it all comes undone. My shelter waits where I can go to hide. While the world burns, I'll be safe inside. Yes, I'm getting ready, ready for the end of the world. Now, some of us may resonate with desire to seek a safe place while the world goes crazy, but preparedness for the end of the world, real true readiness for the Lord's return does not consist of bomb shelters, ammunition storehouses, or our own sustainable food sources. A Christian's preparedness for the end is to be of an entirely different character than that of what was expressed in that poem. Take your Bibles and open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And this morning we're going to set our focus on apostolic instruction that calls us to be rightly prepared for the day of the Lord. The Apostle Paul wrote his first letter to the church at Thessalonica to encourage them toward steadfast faith. He spends the first half of the letter, roughly about the first three chapters, encouraging them from the perspective of his own ministry, both his service to them and then their response to that ministry. And then in the beginning of chapter 4, he turns to encourage them with more direct instruction, more straightforward teaching. Evidently, there were a few concerns in the Thessalonian church that were brought back to Paul via Timothy, who was helping him in ministry, and so he instructs this young congregation with a pastor's heart, hoping to spur them on to excel still more. 
In chapter 5, we drop in right, right smack dab in the middle of the instructional portion of Paul's letter, which began in chapter 4, verse 1. And Paul's concern in this section is that the Thessalonian believers would follow his instructions about godly living so that they would please God more and more. That's what he says in verse 1 of chapter 4. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So Paul is calling their minds back to the instruction that he had given by the authority of Christ. And he's saying, excel still more in following what we taught you and walking after that instruction and obeying our commands because they're commands that bear the authority of Jesus. Beginning in verse 13 of chapter 4, he addresses a group who were grieving over believers who had died. Evidently, believers who were worried that those had died or those who were asleep, they were worried that they would maybe miss out on the Lord's coming. Paul had first mentioned Christ's coming way back in chapter 1 when he characterizes believers in verse 10 as those who wait for his Son from heaven. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Then at the end of chapter 3, his prayer for the Thessalonians is that God would work in their hearts to bring about growth that would be established and made complete at the coming of Jesus. So then in chapter 4, verse 13, he informs the troubled believers there that Christ will gather together believers when he returns. Those believers who have died will rise first, and then those who are still alive will rise, and they will meet together, and all will be together with the Lord. The end of chapter 4, he says, this is to be a comfort. This is to be a comfort for those who had already lost loved ones, who had died in the Lord, believing loved ones, and it was to be a comfort for those who looked at the prospect of death or the future when inevitably they would lose someone. So now as we come to chapter 5, the topic is still related to the end, but the focus is now on how believers are to live in light of the coming day of the Lord. So follow along as I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. The focus of Paul's instruction in this passage is not a detailed timeline of events for the future, but that believers would be spiritually prepared for that astounding day right now, in the present. 
according to the instructions Paul gives here, being prepared for that day means living in light of the Bible's clear teaching about the coming judgment, living soberly and self-controlled with hope in our future salvation, and ministering to one another while we wait for Jesus. Those who are Christ, as we'll see in this text, must be committed to being prepared for that day. And so we're going to organize our look at these 11 verses around three commitments that are essential for day of the Lord preparedness. In verse 1, Paul begins a new section in his letter by bringing up times and epics. He says, now as to the times and the epics, brethren. Now this phrase denotes matters of the future and sometimes as Bible students we hear these words and we get a little excited and maybe even a little eccentric about times and epics and are we about to have some code that helps us discern the future? We even get caught up in the trap of trying to discern based on world events which times or epics we're in. But that's not the point as we're going to see Paul saying this. In fact, he goes on to say he has no need to write them anything about times and epics. But I just want to address this as an aside at the beginning. Sometimes we're asked, or I'm asked, or you may be asked, do you think that we're living in the end times, in the last days? So let me make it clear. Yes, we are. But not because of anything that I recently read in the newspaper. Not because of what happened in the election in November. It has nothing to do with it. Scripture teaches us that the end of the ages began when Christ ascended and the Spirit inaugurated the church. Listen to these these verses, just a few snapshots. In the 50s AD, Paul said, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, that we are those upon whom the end of the ages have come. In the 60s AD, 1 Peter 4, 7, Peter said this, the end of all things is near. In the 90s AD, John said, little children, it is the last hour, 1 John 2, 18. So Paul was writing to Christians who were living in the last days, as we are. We're certainly closer to the climax and the culmination than they were, but same period, the last days. And he notes that they don't need to have anything written to them about times and epics. We may say, well, why not? Well, he answers. The reason's given, verse 2. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. For you yourselves know full well, the Thessalonian believers already knew full well what they needed to know about these times and epics. Remember back in verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul called his readers to heed the authoritative instruction that he had already given them. By heeding his instruction, they would live lives that would be pleasing to Christ, lives as Christ intended, he says. By following my instruction, he says, you will excel more and more in being pleasing to God. It was in that way. And similarly, here in 5, 1 and 2, Paul brings to mind teaching that they had evidently already received. Now the day of the Lord, which is introduced here in the Thessalonian letters, and then he explains further to this group of believers in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, is an important and complex subject across the panorama of Scripture. It's found in the Old Testament prophetic literature, and then it's picked up and expanded upon in the New Testament. We may say this way, that the day of the Lord concerns the climax of history, the future final consummation of God's plans. And at times, especially in the Old Testament, it's even used to refer to events that point forward to that ultimate event, events, days of the Lord that portend that ultimate event where he will come and set everything right. So what are those days look like in the Old Testament? Days like when he visited his people in judgment. He visited his enemies. 
So, but the day of the Lord referred to here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is referring to that culminating day. Not a single moment necessarily, not a single concept. It's multifaceted, but basically it's this. The day of the Lord means trouble for Christ's adversaries and deliverance for Christ's people. Judgment for the wicked and salvation for the righteous. Now, what exactly did they know about this day that Paul said meant that he didn't even need to write anything to them about? Well, they knew that the day of the Lord will come, that it's certain. He says that. You know full well that the day of the Lord will come. They knew that the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. Recall that thief imagery is used by Christ when he's teaching on the last days and that it's also used by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 when he's teaching about the day of the Lord. So it's a common biblical theme. They also knew that the destruction that that day would bring would be sudden and inevitable for unbelievers. Just as sudden and inevitable as labor is when birth pangs begin. So this is worth just clarifying on the thief. Sometimes we may be confused like that the thief in the night is the Lord coming to, to, to take his people home suddenly. And while that day means a visitation, and as First Thessalonians teaches us, he's going to gather together his people, the thief imagery is not pleasant. We're not looking forward to the Lord coming as a thief in the night. That day will arrive as a thief in the night for those, it says in verse 3, who are saying peace and safety before their destruction. And the image that's used there connotes a thief coming upon someone, as we'll see, in darkness, those who dwell in darkness. And it will mean their destruction. Similarly, birth pains or labor pains are used to communicate or illustrate the suddenness and the inevitability of the Lord's coming on that day in judgment. Recently dealt with labor pains in our house. I personally didn't deal with them. My heroic wife did. And I know there are many in our church who are in this season of life, right? There's not necessarily a surprise in the sense you didn't know that you were expecting and going to, to have or birth a child, but the suddenness of labor pains is real. They, they, you don't know the day or the hour when they will begin, right? And they happen. And once they begin in earnest, it's inevitable what's, what the outcome will be. And that's kind of the picture here. Paul says that destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. There will be no escape for those that this day overtakes. And so now at this point, we need to ask, who are they? Who are, who's the them? Who's the they in verse 3? Well, throughout this text, there's two groups. Paul divides humanity into two groups, those in Christ, and they are those who are not in Christ. Those who will be overtaken unto destruction and those who will not be overtaken. You look, there's a they and a them in verse 3. Then in verse 6, there's others. And that refers to this one group, group of unbelievers, as we'll see. And then there's you in verse 1, 2, and 4. And we and us, where Paul includes himself with the Thessalonian believers in verses 5, 6, 8, 9, and 10. So throughout, he's making this clear delineation. As we think about the day of the Lord, we should think between two categories of individual. And the picture in verses 2 and 3 that the Thessalonians were aware of is this group of unsuspecting, ignorant, and unaware people that are confident that no such thing will happen. Peace and safety. And the terrible day of the Lord dawns when they least expect it. 
So Paul says that's plain. They knew this. They didn't need anything written to them. They knew this. But here it serves as a sobering reminder for us that the gospel that we proclaim, the gospel that we're to take to the nations, the gospel that we're to take to our neighbors, the word of God that we're gathered around, these are matters of eternal life and death. Sometimes we may say eternal life tritely and this text reminds us that the salvation we proclaim in the gospel is not figurative. It's a very real salvation from a very real looming judgment. On that day, the Lord will return and that return will overcome, it will surprise and it will overtake unbelievers to their destruction. Those who don't know Christ face certain destruction by the wrath of God. That's what this passage implies. Now, Paul's going to go on from this. Remember, he's writing to believers, so he's telling them, though, about this reality, sobering reality, but he's telling the believers that they know full well this is going to happen. So we learn from that that our preparedness starts with a commitment to the Bible's straightforward teaching about the day of the Lord. In fact, we're warned elsewhere by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, to guard against being carried away by the error of unprincipled men and false teaching concerning the coming of the Lord. And so here Paul reminds the Thessalonian believers what they already knew. Unbelievers will be terribly surprised and overtaken by destruction on that day. He had taught them this before, and now he's going to go on and build from that and teach them how they are to live in light of that awareness. They are to be committed to preparation by relying on God's word. And that will then be the focus of the remainder of the passage. Believers are to live a prepared life because of who they are in Christ. And this is our second commitment. It takes to our second commitment, which starts in verse 4, and that is a commitment to live in a way that corresponds to your new identity. So being prepared begins with simply being committed to the plain teaching of Scripture about the Lord's coming. There's an awareness there. But now in verse 4, he transitions, Paul transitions his focus now to charge the Thessalonian believers to live in such a way that corresponds with who they are in Jesus Christ. A way that corresponds with their new identity. Look at verse 4. He says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. So the thief image returns in verse 4, and then these motifs are introduced. You have darkness and light. You're going to have a sleep and awake. You're going to have sober and drunk. You're going to have day and night. So Paul's contrasting these two groups throughout now. And so in verse 4, he says, You, brethren, in contrast to those who are going to be suddenly overtaken to certain destruction, you, in contrast, you're not in darkness. The day is not going to overtake you in the same way. The implication of the day of the Lord overtakes those who reside in darkness, right? It overtakes them. It, it, darkness connotes the realm of evil. It, it identifies those that are separate from the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Within Paul's metaphor here, darkness is where the thief lurks and overtakes. But he says, encouragingly, Christian, you don't need to worry about that. Because you are not in darkness. Now verses 5 through 10 build on verse 4. Here's kind of the flow of Paul's argument through the remainder of these verses. First, Paul shows this contrast. He contrasts 
an identity between believers and unbelievers in verses 4 and 5. And then he's going to argue and say, based on that identity, this is how you should be prepared and live in light of the day of the Lord. Then after talking about those preparations, he goes on and he further in verses 9 and 10 gives the basis for the hope of salvation, which is a part of that preparedness that we'll see in just a moment. So that's kind of how his argument is stitched together. Now, verse 5 gives the explanation for verse 4. Christians are not in darkness and thus not overtaken on that day. And we say, okay, why exactly? And Paul says, for, verse 5, you are all sons of light and sons of day. So positively, sons of light, sons of day. Negatively, we are not of night nor darkness. So what he says here is that here's why you're not going to be overtaken. Because a Christian has a new identity in Christ. The first thing to understand about why you will not be overtaken on that day if you're in Christ is because of your new identity. So positively, again, believers are sons or daughters of light and sons or daughters of day. And negatively, they're not sons or daughters of night and of darkness. And Paul here is not referring to practical qualities of life yet. He's going to get there. But these are actually talking about what we may call positional realities. This is, these are things that are essential to your identity as a Christian. If you're in Christ, verse 4 and 5 say this about you. You're a son or a daughter of light. You're a son or a daughter of the day. You're not of darkness. You're not of night. Those are just positional identity realities for you. They're essential to who you are as a Christian in Christ. This is similar to what we hear when we say that we're a new creature. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, that's what's in view here. Christians are sons or daughters of light, sons or daughters of the day. Formerly, we lived in darkness. Now we are light in Christ. Our hearts have been enlightened toward righteousness. We're no longer enslaved to the darkness of sin and the futility of our minds. And Paul says that ultimately is the basis for your confidence that you will not be overtaken in that day. So here we see first our relationship to the future is governed by our relationship with Christ. And so we look forward to his coming. We don't look forward to his coming with fear or with trembling in the way that those in darkness would if they were aware. We don't look forward to the question of our judgment. We can be confident we won't be overtaken. That's because, Paul says, of our new identity. And that's great news. That's an encouragement. Just by the fact that you are in Christ, you need not fear that you will be overtaken by the day of the Lord. That's what he's teaching them. It's a significant contrast to those who are in darkness. We're just saying that what a glorious dawn. Fear of death is gone, for we carry his life in our veins. There's resurrection life in you. You're a son of light. You're a son of of day. You don't need to fear. However, as he's going to go on to say, that identity should not result in laxity then of life while we wait for Jesus. It should actually result in watchfulness, in sober alertness. In fact, our new identity as children of light and children of our day is the basis now that Paul uses to call us to preparedness. That's the so then of verse 6. He says, verse 4 and 5, You, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you all are sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, verse 6, there's a necessary action that accompanies your identity as sons and daughters of light 
in light of your knowledge about the Lord's future coming. He says it's not enough to know our identity and live however we want while we wait for Jesus. That's the idea. He's going to go on to say that being prepared for the day of the Lord means living with watchfulness and self-control. Listen to verses 6 through 8. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet, and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So now another series of contrasting illustrations are used to demonstrate what should characterize the Christian life in light of the coming day of the Lord. This is what a prepared lifestyle looks like. That's what Paul is aimed at here. He says, not asleep, but alert and sober. And he says, not drunk, but sober. Then he says, not living as those characterized by night, but living as those who are of the day in accordance with your essential identity. And we're reminded, unbelievers are of the darkness. They're the ones who will be overtaken by the day of the Lord. And the characteristics of sleep or sort of negligence or inattentiveness and drunkenness are for those in darkness. That's what he makes clear. Those who await this judgment, this terrible day, are in darkness, and they live like it. That's what he's, that's what he's saying in verse 7. But in contrast... Christians are of the day, and they're to live like it. Verse 8 says, but since we're of the day, let us be sober. Terminology here for alertness, it means awake and watchful. It's the terms that Christ used when he talks about being watchful and alert in preparation for his return. It doesn't simply mean, like, keeping an eye on the sky, right? Only watching the clouds. Like, figuratively, yes, but it doesn't mean, like, that we're outside just always looking up. It means watching yourself, watching your spiritual life, that you don't enter into temptation, being alert morally, guarding against sin and patterns of life that don't honor Christ. Sober means self-controlled and rational. It's the antithesis of drunkenness used very plainly in this passage. To have a sober temper is to be aware that our adversary roars, right? He prowls like a roaring lion seeking to devour Peter uses the soberness there. Soberness is used to refer to the recognition of our need for prayer, to be watchful in it. It's used of other concerns in the New Testament about our devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, alert and sober Christians are not simply watching the clouds, but watching themselves and watching one another. That's the idea. How are you to be prepared for that day? Would you be prepared by living in accordance with your new identity? And what does that look like? It looks like being alert and sober, watchful while you wait on that coming day. It's to say that we seek to live circumspect lives with spiritual alertness that makes us aware and sensitive to the Lord's will. We want to live lives that are pleasing to him. Again, Paul bases all of this on who we are already in Jesus. He's saying, be who you are. You are a son of light, a daughter of light, so live like it. That's the, that's the point. The emphasis is clear and it's emphatic and it's on Christian conduct while we live awaiting that day. That's what he's after. 
He repeats the exhortation throughout. We have multiple times where he asks and calls for sobriety and alertness. And he even reminds us in, again, in verse 8, of that identity that makes this conduct possible. So we think, what does prepared life look like? How, how are we to be waiting and watching in the right frame of mind? Well, we could ask in the contrast, right? He contrasts it with drunken carousing at night, being in a drunken stupor. That's the, that's the contrast to how we're to live as faithful Christians watching and waiting for the return of the Lord. It raises the question, does, does our Christian life resemble more a, a drunken stupor at night? Are we unalert, in attempt, confused, foggy-headed? Or do we live with watchful self-control, lives that are bright in the noonday sun, ready, watchful? One implication from this is we simply cannot claim to be eagerly waiting on the Lord's return if we're not morally alert and sober of heart. That's the idea. We are called to be morally alert, attentive to our spiritual condition, attentive to what the Lord wants from us, and sober of heart, self-controlled, considering what the Lord's will is while we wait. And so in light of Paul's exhortation, we do well to ask, do the patterns of our lives demonstrate this preparedness? Or are we more habitually at or do we stumble into patterns like those saying peace and safety while they dwell in darkness and ignorance and rebellion? It says to be prepared for that day is to live in a way that corresponds to your new life in Christ. You're new. You're of the day. You're of the light. And live in accordance with day and light. Now, verse 8, the self-control and the sobriety that he calls for is further explained. He goes on, but since we are of the day, let us be sober. And then he explains this further. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So now he explains the sobriety as, as being clothed with the proper armor. Let me say that those who are of the day believers are to be watchful with the right spiritual armor. And the illustration is that of a properly outfitted and ready disciplined soldier. One who's, who's watching, girded with faith, love, and hope. Spiritual qualities that are there to protect this sobriety and watchfulness. It's these spiritual qualities that enable this godly sobriety that Paul's calling for. Faith, we may shorthand say it, refers to the dependent, self-denying trust in Jesus Christ for everything. Love, this essential quality of believers, right? The, God, the love of God issues forth from us in love of others. We love God, we love others. He puts that in our hearts. And then he says the hope of salvation, which is the expectation of full and final salvation at the consummation of the ages. The prepared are those who are prepared, those who are living the right way, those who are actually rightly concerned with the Lord's coming are not the speculative, not the carefree, not the negligent about this life, not the spiritually lazy, but godly, faithful Christians who are full of faith, full of love, and full of hope. Lesson is simply the best way to prepare for the return of Christ is to pursue righteousness. Now, armor is only as good as the materials that it's composed of, right? A breastplate or a helmet may fit well. They may even look good. They may look right. But if they're constructed of weak materials, they won't do you much good in battle. 
And so having highlighted the hope of salvation, which is the helmet of this armor that sober sons and daughters of day and light are to wear, Paul moves on to remind his readers of the basis for that hope. We may say he goes on to tell us what that helmet is made of. Verse 9, further give us this basis for our hope of salvation. Verse 9, Paul says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. The basis for the hope of salvation, the hope of salvation which is part of the armor that girds us in sobriety, is a believer's certain destiny, appointed by God and secured by Jesus Christ. First, we see that a believer's destiny is appointed by God. God did not destine believers for wrath. By God's sovereign appointment, his electing choice to set love on those who would be his people, believers have been and will be rescued from wrath. Christian, you're not destined for wrath, positionally, like by God's appointment. That is wonderful news. God's wrath denotes his settled disposition towards sin, the destruction that will come upon all ungodliness and all evil, ultimately poured out at the end of the age. And he says, as you consider the end, believer, what comfort, what joy to know all that God's wrath will bring on that day and you, by God's divine appointment, were not destined for that. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Thank him for that. Just consider for a moment the unimaginable force with which the day of the Lord will come upon this earth. Right? Full wrath poured out in full on Christ's enemies. Overtaken. Destruction that is certain. And we get to say we've been saved from that. If you're in Christ this morning, rejoice in these words. Yes, you've been chosen by God. You could add to that, not destined for wrath. Let me just say, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, that's your destiny. Verses 2 and 3 identify the destiny that awaits all who don't have the shelter of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10 says that this destiny, it was not merely appointed, it was obtained by Christ. He identified first in verse 9, obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now verse 10, he who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Believer's destiny was appointed in eternity past and it was secured and accomplished by Jesus Christ in history. He died for us. This emphasizes his substitution, his death for believers in their place. He died for us, Paul says. Remember the two groups. He's identifying here believers have Christ's death by which they obtain salvation. Because of his substitutionary sacrificial death, his presence on that great and terrible day will not be the outpouring of wrath. It will be a long-awaited meeting to spend eternity with him and other believers. And here Paul connects the conclusion to this section with the conclusion at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. When Jesus returns, all believers will be together together with him. And this is to bring assurance. He says, whether we're awake or asleep. Awake here means alive. Asleep, just as it did in 1 Thessalonians 4, means dead. 
whether life or death, when Christ returns, you will be together with him. Why? Because he died for you. And because God didn't destine you for wrath. That's the comfort to believers that ultimately is the basis for our hope of salvation. And it's that hope that then is supposed to keep us sober and self-controlled as we live here in light of that coming day. Now Paul closes this section in the same way that we find many eschatological portions of Scripture concluding. He, he brings an application to life, a very straightforward application. We may ask the question, how then shall we live? We know about the coming day. We know how we're called to, to act and, and what to, who we are in Christ and what we're to do in Christ. And then he goes on even clearer and says, therefore, verse 11, so what do we do? In light of what we know about the day of the Lord's certainty and suddenness, in light of what we know about the judgment that will overtake those who don't know Christ, in light of what we understand about our identity in Christ and how that new identity calls us to alert and sober living, in light of what we hope in for the outcome of our salvation, what should we do? Paul tells us in verse 11, we minister to one another. Verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. The third and final commitment that is essential for day of the Lord preparedness is a commitment to help one another prepare while we wait. Similar to his charge in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1, where he says, Excel still more. Here, Paul instructs them to do something, some more of something that they're already doing. They're to encourage one another. They're to build one another up. They're to seek mutual edification, ministry, discipleship. Encourage could mean comfort. It could also mean exhort. It's whatever's needful, depending on the situation. Build one another up refers to edification, that church word, right, where we build one another up in the truth, discipleship, admonishing the unruly, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, all in truth. And the therefore at the beginning of verse 11 shows that Paul is drawing this inference from the reality of all that believers will be together with him, so that reality that all believers will be together with Christ, and then even more, all that he has taught about the day of the Lord. All the preceding teaching. Let me say it this way. Paul's point is that the future should be a focus of our ministry to one another. Preparedness for that day means we need to minister to one another, to help one another be prepared. We can call one another righteousness. Brother or sister, the patterns of your life are not patterns of light and day. We can call one another out of spiritual apathy. Light of that coming day. Brother, sister, be alert. The day of Christ looms. Sober up. Sister, your concerns are misplaced. Be self-controlled. Christ is coming. That's the idea. That day and all that he has said about that day and all that he has said about how we're to live in light of that day and in light of our identity should be part of our ministry to one another, building up the body of Christ. We can assure one another with these truths, right? Friend, you're not destined for wrath. Christ, who died for you, is coming. We will be together with him. Take heart. So the day of the Lord is coming. They already knew that. We knew that. 
I trust, before we came in here this morning. But we're reminded of what the scripture teaches about that. We're called to reflect on the identity we have in Christ that gives us a hopeful outlook toward that day. And then in light of that identity, we're called, there's marching orders, to be alert and sober as we wait for that day and we're to minister to one another with these truths to help us be ready. And it's worth saying, look, there is no fortress men can build. There is no weapon a man can wield. There's no amount of supply that will stave off the day that is talked about in verses 2 and 3. The only way to find shelter from that coming day and the certain destruction it brings is faith in the one who is coming, the one who's obtained salvation for us. So far from trusting in self-dependence, self-reliance, the ones who will be secure when cataclysm comes, the ones who will be secure when that day is un- and Jesus is- are unveiled are those who've placed their dependence on Christ. And those who've done that are called to live in a manner worthy of him now. And we're to encourage one another toward preparedness, building one another up while we wait. 